A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, on this week's New States from podcast, yeah, we ask, are we heading for a second lockdown? And you ask us, what is the government really up to with the internal market bill? So around 10 million people across the UK are now in some form of second lockdown. Many, many people are unable to get tests in a timely fashion. Therefore, increasing the number of people who are in self-isolation and the amount of time they're in self-isolation for. And the kind of question on almost everyone's lips at Westminster is, are we heading for a second lockdown? Anoush, what do you think? Well, it sort of depends on what you mean by second lockdown. I, I do find that question quite amusing because I always think the subtext is, it's only a national lockdown if it's happening in London, if you see what I mean. There's a lot of places throughout the country that have already experienced the pain of a second lockdown or are just about to go into one. So we're not really heading towards one. We've had one ever since before Eat Out to Help Out even came in. For example, I interviewed restaurant owners in Aberdeen that had to go straight into a second lockdown the day after they were able to use the scheme for one evening. So there are places in the country that are already experiencing the second lockdown effect. Leicester was the first place. Notoriously, you know, it was it was very difficult and at the beginning poorly organised for them. I spoke to hospitality people there as well, and they've said that they've experienced what they've described as a Leicester leper effect because people are put off using their hospitality services even when they come out from under a second lockdown. So already businesses have experienced that pain of having to close or having to lose their customers again. So I think the question, are we heading for a second lockdown, could be quite insulting to certain corners of the country. Nevertheless, you know, a national lockdown is is a different kettle of fish and something that it's, it's very clear that the government doesn't want to say that it's doing. But the question really is, are we heading for a second national lockdown in all but name as they start trying to control people's socialising and, and pubs opening hours and the number of people you can spend time with in so many parts of the country that it essentially spans the whole country. And the thing that will dictate that is the rate of coronavirus and where it's spiking and whether or not that sort of carries on being region by region or, or if, it, if it starts overtaking its sort of baseline figures throughout the country. And then I think there'll be little choice but to impose a number of local lockdowns at the same time. <laughs> and it's funny, Anush, that that isn't even just the subtext, the, you know, will London be next? Will London be affected? It's actually just the explicit text of a lot of the coverage of this <laughs> as well. Right. <laughs> like there's no, not even any attempt to hide They're it. Shame. And I do wonder, yeah, you know, just say it with your chest. Uh, yeah, I wonder whether, I mean, I don't know how a local lockdown would work in London whether 
you know, only a certain part of London would be affected by that or whether it would be the whole of London. But kind of either way, I do wonder how the coverage of this would be affected if one of the main centres where this gets covered was directly affected, because I think it it would just massively shape the the discussion around, as you say, like really millions of people already are in a form of of lockdown at the moment. I mean, I suppose we all are in the sense that we're abiding by rules, but you know, the the millions of people who who can no longer mix with someone from another household will already feel like in most material ways they have kind of returned to lockdown already but that might not sort of trickle down into the coverage until somewhere in like a major center of journalism is affected it does kind of skew the coverage because there was a and also in terms of like the slightly funny but also grim coverage there was a story breaking today that Chris Whitty has been pushing for a two-week national lockdown which is a huge story and then it was followed by a correction that actually a second source said he wasn't calling for that. So that's all off, which I just think was kind of just a funny example of thinking that one source is credible and actually then this this huge story collapses. But clearly that that I think actually that, that must have come from from somewhere and there's no smoke without fire. We clearly are in a really dangerous situation at the moment where the testing system is just not working because you really need people to be able to get their tests back within 24 hours for it to be, you know, remotely useful in terms of contact tracing. So I do wonder whether, yeah, as as you say, Anish, whether blunter measures will have to come in quite soon, either in terms of just more rule tightening if the rule of six doesn't work. Or we'll we'll just see many, many more local lockdowns such that it doesn't really matter whether we're talking about a national lockdown or or not. Most people are experiencing one. Stephen, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree. And so in some ways, you know, my, I mean, I'm annoyed by two things. One is the very loud helicopter that appears to be hovering overhead at this end. So apologies if, if, if listeners are, are picking up on that. So as well as my imminent kidnap by the deep state, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> because what I obviously wanted was for one of you to fall into the trap of going, why yes, and me being like... Hmm, but, but yeah, you best start believing in second lockdowns, lassies, because you're in one. Um, <laughs> what I find unnerving is that Alva didn't laugh at that Pirates of the Caribbean reference, which makes me worried that maybe that film is actually simply too old for Alva to know what it's a reference to. Um, so it's it's not that the film is too old, but I was quite young when I've seen when I saw it. So that's a, that's a reference to my really early childhood. The sort of the blurry memory. God, I wish they would kill me. <laughs> but moving on from that deeply dispiriting revelation. Yeah, I mean, I think I have two questions. One, how are we not in a second lockdown now, right? Like, at the point when parts of the country are having curfews and, yeah, and, like, there are sharp restrictions on who you can meet again, right? That is, you know, a flavour of lockdown. But more importantly, from a opening up the economy perspective, right? If, and I, I know I've used this example before, but like, we all remember in March how, how most, well, I say we all remember, actually, this seems to have been largely forgotten by almost everyone, right? But like, in the first week of March, people were locking down already. The, my last sort of contact lunch, yeah, we, we literally had the run of the restaurant. You know, it was one of those things that we came in and the sort of minister in question, we were just like, well, I mean, yeah. They said, like, they, said, they said, I can't work out if this is deeply indiscreet because we are literally the only people here. They said, or if we could sit here yelling at each other about like about the state of the government without anyone being being aware. And that was kind of, that was essentially the state of 
yeah, that was the state of Westminster. That was the state of the. I, I went on holiday the weekend, the first weekend in March. The country was already voluntarily reducing its social contacts because of, you know, the second those photos emerged from Italy, and understandably so. And I just think the thing is, is isn't you know, so so Teesside is not in the the swathe of of counties that have got a 10 p.m. curfew and a restriction on mixing in households. But, you know, if I lived in Teesside, right, and someone said, hey, do you want to come to, like, I don't know, something I really wouldn't want to do, but I do to be polite, like, you know, like all bar one or something, right? Like, just some, something you do to be polite, right? Or, you know, like a panel, right? I don't think I'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, deaths, mate. I'm, I'm definitely going to go to that. I'm going, hmm. Maybe I won't. And this is, I think, the other thing is that the government has weirdly, I think, managed to convince both itself, but also a non-trivial group of voters, yeah, both to its left and its right, that like lockdown is a thing that does, rather than like lockdown being a thing that people sort of opt to do voluntarily, and you cannot really enforce without the passive consent of, of most people. I just don't see how, yeah, how people aren't going to just start like, Locking down, right? I mean, if we did it on like a borough by borough basis in London, right? If like um, you know, Islington or Tower Hamlets, which sort of neighbour neighbour Hackney, went into lockdown, I don't think people around here would be like, oh boy, oh boy, time to make no meaningful changes to my life. So yeah, I just think yes, yeah, as, as you both say, we we are in a lockdown already. It, it always comes back to something that I think you wrote, which was that the lockdown was sort of bottom up. I can't remember the actual phrase that you used, but I, I was just interviewing someone for a, for a piece that I'm working with with the New Statesman data team about recovery after the original lockdown. And they were taking pr- the pre-lockdown period, these researchers, as up to the 6th of March. Now, that's a lot earlier than the actual official lockdown, which was the 23rd of March. But that's when they'd identified businesses starting to lose customers, footfall dropping, people staying indoors, people shopping locally rather than centrally. So 6th of March, you know, that's 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 a hell of a long time before the government was actually telling people you must stay stay at home and stay indoors as much as possible. And so there's no reason why that kind of phenomenon isn't happening again. And like you say, particularly if you have neighbouring areas that are going into into local lockdowns, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to ignore that to carry on going about your life just because you live in a particular postcode. And it, and it's true that it, it is off-putting to people who would otherwise have, you know, travelled somewhere to, to socialise, even when places have come out of local lockdown. So I go back to that Leicester example. But even now, you know, people who live in Leicester who have invited family members to come to restaurants or events or you know, social occasions are finding that people are reluctant to go. That's not because the government is telling people not to go to Leicester. That's because, like you say, you know, people are deciding for themselves whether they're locking down or not, or whether they're avoiding certain areas or not. That has a big effect on the economic recovery. And of course, you know, it just comes back to the topic of the week, which is you only really can get around that effect and improve people's confidence and make places safer by having an, an efficient testing regime. And obviously that testing regime has been <laughs> severely put to the test, particularly as schools have reopened. Yeah, I was I was going to to bring that in because I think that's the sort of the, the important piece of the jigsaw in this conversation, that the crisis at the moment around testing is in large part because of the return of schools, which basically everyone in politics agrees um, 
should have been and, and is the priority. But as Yvette Cooper was saying on Robert Peston's show last night, you know, it's it's really obvious when, when kids return to school, they, they get coughs and colds. Colds are less important. I mean, not good for spreading for, you know, good respiratory hygiene and stuff. But, you know, colds, colds matter less. But when children develop coughs, you know, they will have coronavirus symptoms, even if cases aren't actually rising. There will be an uptick in demand as children return to school. And it seems bizarre either that the government didn't quite anticipate that, that there will be there will just be a huge surge in people needing to get tested. And then the then the huge overspill or like the the knock-on effect of of the people who are in contact with that person, including, you know, Keir Starmer, as we saw this week with his own child who had coronavirus symptoms, but then the test eventually came back negative. You know, the, the knock-on effect of, of the people in contact with that child who will also need to self-isolate. It seems unfathomable that either the government didn't anticipate that or just isn't in a position where it is sufficiently prepared. There has been some really excellent coverage of this, explaining where the problems are in particular, and they're particularly bad in the top 10 COVID hotspots in England where there where you know no tests are available at the moment but I think that it's still it isn't 100% clear what the root causes of the problem and whether it was avoidable so we know that labs are struggling to process tests fast enough and that's where the shortage is coming from. We hear lots of reports of, of empty testing centres, but they're deliberately turning people away because they, you know, they can't send samples to labs and there's no point testing people if their results aren't going to be processed quickly enough. And even a lot of tests that are being processed are, are being processed so late that it's kind of meaningless. But I think that, yeah, the fundamental question, I suppose, is whether there's actually just a problem with the number of labs the UK has, the number of tests it has bought, that we've, we've kind of hit a ceiling with it. And there's nothing that the government could reasonably have done in this period. You know, while we were in lockdown, however much it tried to ramp things up, whether it could have done done more or if this is actually another government failing. What do what do the two of you think? Obviously, I, I defer to Anoush as, as the kind of like our Britain and social policy maven. But I just think instinctively, right, it is impossible to sustain the argument that if all of the focus had been, that has been spent on removing senior civil servants, preparing for us to leave, end the transition period in December 2020 had been elsewhere. It's just implausible, right, than the mere act of focusing of the government narrowing its focus a bit, right? Rather than being like, ah, as well as combating the pandemic, we are going to fix defence procurement, revolutionise the civil service, slash, you know, use 70 Whitehall as as, as an expanded PM's department, etc, etc. Therefore, I kind of feel like, while obviously it is an organisational challenge that many states are struggling with and obviously there's like the long-term legacy issues of 10 years of spending cuts making that harder I just can't see how the fact we haven't really quit any of our side hustles has helped (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that's that's a fair analysis I mean it's it's you when there's huge disasters like this I always try and sort of counter my usual eye rolling by thinking 
is this something that every government would struggle with? Yes, of course it is. It's, 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 it's a challenge that no other government has had to negotiate. But then you think of all of the promises made by this government, particularly since coronavirus began to spread, the testing targets that were not met in any real sense, you know, to the extent that they were chastised by the UK statistics authority head. Then you think of the sort of targets that have been missed in other in other areas and the sort of overpromising and underdelivering. Then you think of the mixed messaging, you know, go out and and eat. It's, you know, for the good of your country, for the good of the economy. Oh, actually, I think it's young people who are spreading this virus. <laughs> you think <laughs> of all of these contradictions. Obviously, they're trying to walk a very, very difficult tightrope of economic health and, and health health, which is difficult. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to that. But you just think this is a trap that you've made for yourself that you've walked straight into because of your commitment to spin over any substance. And we've just seen it in so many different policies to do with coronavirus and, and, and outside of coronavirus as well, you know, including the things that Stephen just mentioned about sort of revolutionising the the civil service in inverted commas. So it's difficult to have sympathy for a government that blows its own horn, but really can't, can't deliver. Clearly, you know, it was it was talking about testing being its priority. Clearly, it wasn't because, you know, it, for some reason, it didn't do enough to mitigate the, the problems that were easily foreseen, particularly by teachers and teaching unions about the need to have such a big ability to to process tests by the time children go back to school. Otherwise, schools will close. Loads of children and teachers and parents will have to be in self-isolation again. And that's exactly what's happened. So, you know, it's difficult, although we don't know, you know, precise reason why the testing regime has failed and I, and I think it would be sort of lying to to say that you knew exactly why it wasn't working because these things only become clear in time I do think that that there's been just a huge amount of of disingenuous messaging from this government that that means that it's perfectly legitimate to sort of condemn them for this failure and it is I suppose worth remembering that this is you know this the the organization responsible for this now was formed like less than a month ago in a speech of policy exchange by Matt Hancock and you know and you know because we've, we've talked about the replacement of of public health England and, and merging it with NHS test and trace um mm. into one body but they're they're still really I think there hasn't really been a a completely robust argument by the government about why this organizational restructure needs to happen now and I'm just imagining maybe everyone at Public Health England and so on is working from home but you know I don't know how much of a physical reorganization that is but just imagine if you're you know responsible for coronavirus testing at this really crucial juncture for the UK's fight against this pandemic and you're also moving desk and moving laptop and changing emails and changing you know the your headed notepaper and everything changing you know mm. your, your email hand and I just if, when you think of even on a really boring level beyond all the complicated facts around merging one organization with another to make it a different structure. When you think of all the boring admin involved, there's just no way that that hasn't added a whole other set of tasks that detract from the priority of of getting you know sufficient testing capacity. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think about what you you said of how everyone in politics accepts that schools, yeah, are really important. They go back. I think the weird thing is, is that well, they do and they don't, right? Because 
if the government really believed that schools were the most important thing to get back, we wouldn't have had like a fortnight of if you don't go in and work from the office, you're wicked. Here's 500 million for people to go out and eat in restaurants, go out and do this, you know, go forth and consume as much as you can, right? Because if we really, 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 really cared about having schools open no matter what, we would, as well as not doing any of these organizational projects, we would be treating the kind of COVID risk budget in the same way that the government has treated the actual budget for the last decade, which is to treat it like a household one and go, okay, mm. you can have X amount of risk and you need to spend that on schools. You have mm. Y amount and you have to spend that on like food, agri- yeah, food, agriculture, you know, a, a bunch of like mission critical infrastructure, as it were. And then and only then would we talk about which bits of the economy can transition to working in in a COVID safe way and which ways bits need to be able to reopen in some ways in order to function rather than the kind of like advance on all fronts, Mm. go forth and stimulate. Yeah, or even it wouldn't even have to be as complicated as that, because, I mean, there was probably, you know, there was an early policy failure, arguably, to shut schools in the first place and not to have them reopen before the summer. But at the point where there was broad consensus that schools should reopen, there was a quite straightforward conversation being led by just sort of policy experts and in the discussion about schools reopening about possibly yeah, needing to just do a very simple trade-off that potentially you, as the cost of opening schools again and the huge number of social contacts that that will entail, you just turn something else off again. And, you know, so I think the obvious one would be pubs. And so in the Republic of Ireland, for example... They make a distinction between wet and dry pubs, which I think is funny because it, you know, harks back to the original or the probable original source of the virus being a wet market. Um, (laughs) But basically they draw a distinction between pubs that serve food and, and pubs that only serve alcohol and the pubs that only serve alcohol aren't open at the moment. And I mean, I don't know if that would at all be enough to offset the huge number of social contacts being caused by schools reopening but people were talking about you know maybe the trade-off is you know if you you have your schools and you don't have your pubs I think it could have just been a little bit easier than that rather than continued talk of reopening as you say Stephen people you know weren't going into the office people are still broadly working from home rather than having that conversation we could have just not had it we could have just not had the rhetoric from government about people needing to you know, commute and go into city centres to do work that they could easily do from home. You could have not had that. You could have thought about other parts of the economy, like pubs or or other things, and just made that that difficult trade-off if you could, you know, had foreseen that there would be insufficient testing capacity. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You You Ask Us. us. This question is from an anonymous user, actually. The government seems to be acting wholly irrationally with regard to this internal market bill. Surely a negotiating bluff is not worth trashing the country's international reputation. So is there a deeper goal? And if so, what is it? Well, I mean, this is I suppose this is the big question about the internal market bill and sort of its consequences. Is it a negotiating bluff? Is it being used by the UK government to try and be tough in the negotiations, either to try and get concessions from the EU side or to try and get buy-in from right-wing Eurosceptic Tory backbenchers who aren't so happy with, with the government alongside, you know, lots of other Tory MPs of different persuasions. So is it sort of, is it for political purposes or is it just, you know, a sign that the government is not particularly serious about doing a de- deal with the EU and is just preparing for for that outcome. That's the big question. And, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast many times, the government's intentions for its future relationship with the EU just cannot be reconciled with the reality of, of the withdrawal agreement that, that, that they created, the oven-ready deal, which is why I suppose their legislation that they're trying to bring forward contradicts it. Nevertheless, there are sort of suggestions that they are trying to find a compromise to avoid a rebellion next week, which suggests to me that the government was trying to bite off more than it could chew. And the amount of backlash that it's had isn't just from the usual suspects that usually a sort of Boris Johnson led government such as this could stomach and probably even relishes, but it's from a lot of people who they would want to have on side, as we spoke about before, people like Michael Howard and other voices, other sort of Tory big hitters, and they just weren't ready to stomach that kind of rebellion. So I do think perhaps it was, I can't remember the actual wording in the question, but I I think I suppose that it was um, a miscalculation if it was a bluff, because it seems like they've had to climb down. Or it was, you know, a sort of another sign for for us that that Boris Johnson is probably serious about a no deal, or is or is happy for that to be the outcome of the negotiations with the EU, which we shouldn't discount. Yeah, so I think I just essentially think that, to be honest, like the the argument for the bill, and obviously we haven't really talked at all about the things it changes about the devolution settlement, is I just think broadly it exists because the government wants to do the things that it allows them to do. You know, the justification that, you know, that when Dom Cummings was urging people to vote for the deal at MV3, yeah, for Theresa May's deal at moving the meaningful vote three, and, yeah, the justification that Michael Gove was making when he was arguing people should vote for it in the first meaningful vote, let alone the third, and the justification that was made that, you know, Bernard Jenkins has now written about, and this was what, you know, Brexiteers and other MPs who were concerned about that regulatory border in the Irish Sea were told is, don't worry, we can fix this in phase two, we can fix this once we're out, because the victory of leaving is a victory that cannot be unpicked, whereas everything else is is, is up for negotiation. And I just think that, like, if you look at what it actually does, if you look at the kind of predilections of the government on state aid, it broadly just fits with that desire, and as you say, that openness to a, a no-deal Brexit. 
Yeah, I think it's it's basically, I suppose, an attempt by this government to have the Brexit that it wants uh, as sort of a Brexit without compromise, as it would see it. So it does sound as though there there have been some talks with the DUP and the government has been over the past few months increasingly open to hearing from them about their concerns which I think the government has known all along or like you know obviously Theresa May was very concerned about maintaining the integrity of the union and accommodating unionist concerns you know partly because of the confidence and supply deal with the DUP but partly just anyway and then Boris Johnson's government unexpectedly reneged on that commitment to Ulster unionists and the DUP have been furious ever since as well as just lots and lots of unionists in Northern Ireland but I think that with this they are trying to accommodate those concerns to get rid of the well it doesn't completely get rid of the border in the Irish Sea but it sort of mitigates some of those concerns about a thickened economic border it also gives concessions to the Eurosceptic wing of the Conservative Party um, over rules about state aid it's basically, it, it is kind of, I think, everything that David Frost has said that, that he wants from Brexit whenever he writes about this or, or has delivered speeches on it, that, you know, Brexit means sovereignty. It really means, as far as is possible, that you're not taking orders from the EU anymore. Um, but where, where it's complicated, I think, is that maybe it's just sort of too too boring and repetitive to go into but just clearly because of the the tricky peace settlement in Northern Ireland you can't just suddenly turn your back on the EU because of that gaping border with the EU that exists on the island of Ireland and then you know reneging on all those commitments and so on breaches international law it infuriates nationalists and people with you know with concern for parity of esteem who want to see that border frictionless as well as you know concerning former prime ministers and everyone in the EU and so on so yeah I, I kind of agree with Stephen that you can see the origins of it that they were just sort of I think you know the fact that it's a negotiating strategy potentially as well helps I mean that they definitely have been trying to reassure MPs that it's just a negotiating strategy but I think it is also sort of like a bid for freedom of just sort of putting in the bill everything that you want from it and saying that that's what you're going to do and what you're going to go for unless you get a better deal from the EU. I suppose listeners don't need us to rattle through for them why why it's, it's far more complicated than just sort of trying to pass your, your Brexit wish list as, as UK law. You've been listening to the New States and Podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our political correspondent, Alva Rowe, and our Britain editor, Anusha Kellyan. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. We're produced and recorded by Nick Hilton. If you're enjoying the New States and Podcast, please do like and subscribe. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.